Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 73 Grail King. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode, looking at the legend that shaped history in these films, decoding the first superhero through the lens of the first Grail Knight. This show dives deep into DC films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Salutations, my friends. In today's episode, we finally encounter the elusive grail and begin to explore some of the major themes of Percival and our DC films. This is the second part of the miniseries, so please go back and listen to the last episode, which was more Man of Steel, before we catch up here in this episode, which will be more BVS. So in the previous adventures of Percival, he was raised by his mother who kept him alone in the woods, and ignorant of knightly pursuits lest he perish like his father and brothers who died in battle as knights. He grew up knowing nothing about anything, but was curious to a fault, always asking questions, and pure of heart. When he encounters knights for the first time, he is amazed and determined to become one, and he has a series of misadventures blundering about, often making mistakes, until an old knight trains him properly. He is taught the ins and outs of chivalry, and trained to hold his inquisitive tongue for appearance's sake. Percival is incredibly successful as a knight, culminating in sending King Arthur armies of bested foes as newly loyal subjects saving a besieged kingdom, and getting married to his sweetheart, the orphan queen Blanche Fleur. However, rather than settling down as lord of the castle, he sets out to reunite with his mother, to show her his progress, have her meet Blanche Fleur, and to ask his mother to come live with them. And so Percival returns to the place of his childhood as he heads into the wild woods again. By now, we're two years on, he is one of the great knights. He has achieved fulfillment in the world then as it was. And he is ready for the spiritual adventure. No monk knight, no Galahad. The spirit is the fulfillment of life, not something instead of it. He asks her permission to ride back and see how his mother is. And his queen gives him permission, so he rides off. Again, the reins are slack on the neck of the horse. That evening, he pulls up at a lake, and out in the lake is a boat with two men in it fishing, and one of them has on his bonnet peacock feathers. This is the Grail King. And so the next chapter of the story might be called the Grail Castle, which concerns itself mostly with two things, the enigmatic Fisher King and the mysterious Grail Procession. As before, accounts differ, but they generally agree that arriving at the Grail Castle is a supernatural event. It's a castle that comes and goes and doesn't exactly exist on any map. He looks around carefully and then suddenly, as if out of nowhere, magically, a castle appears. The implication here is that Percival is somehow entering another world. A magical world? The other world? The world of the dead, perhaps? The world of spirits? And he enters this world by crossing a river, where he finally enters the castle of the Fisher King. The Fisher King, like Percival, like Superman, is known by many names, sometimes called the Wounded King or the Maimed King. 
Sometimes he's Anfortus, other times he's Braun or Pelahan, Ransom or Author. Most accounts agree he is also the Grail King, and that he is grievously and painfully wounded. The Fisher King, the King of the Castle, has been wounded. His wounds are so severe that he cannot live, yet he is incapable of dying. He groans, he cries out, he suffers constantly. The whole land is in desolation, for a land mirrors the condition of its king. The only respite from his injury is when he engages in fishing, a sport that kings did not participate in at the time. Accounts diverge on how he received the wound. There are generally three ways. Burned by a piece of fish, castrated by jousting with a pagan knight, or as supernatural punishment for defying the grail, typically for philandering. The second concept tied to the Fisher King is that of the wasteland. So let's unpack the ways that he gets wounded, and then the wasteland, and what all this has to do with Man of Steel and BVS. Mythbuster Adam Savage summarizes the first version of the wound and how it resonated with him. Robert Johnson wrote a couple of books. They're fabulous and they're super problematic. However, in it, Johnson talks about the Grail legend, the King Arthur Grail legend, as indicative of a man's coming of age and how Parsifal is our stand-in and our protagonist. And in this telling of the Arthurian legend, the Fisher King is so called because he was walking through the woods as a kid, as a young prince, and he came upon an abandoned campfire with a fish on a spit over the campfire and he was hungry. It wasn't his campfire, it wasn't his fish, but he reached out to touch the fish because he was hungry and he burned his fingers and to salve the burn, he put his fingers in his mouth and he tasted fish. Big deal, right? But Johnson points out that this is a lovely mythos for a person's coming of age, that in our early youth, we see glimpses of who we will become and we can taste them. Sometimes they burn us, it's totally true, but we can taste them. And when we taste that fish, when we taste the, the thing that we want, when we taste that future, we get a glimpse of what's possible. The Jungian analyst Robert A. Johnson provides the further implications of the story. This is the Fisher King wound and gives its name to the ruler of much of our modern psychology. Modern suffering man is the heir to this psychological event which took place culturally some 800 years ago. Much is to be learned from the symbol of the wounded Fisher King. The salmon, or more generally the fish, is one of the many symbols of Christ. As in the story of the Fisher King coming upon the roasting salmon, a boy in his early adolescence touches something of the Christ's nature within himself but touches it too soon. He is unexpectedly wounded by it and drops it immediately as being too hot. But a bit of it gets into his mouth and he can never forget the experience. His first contact with what will be redemption for him later in life is a wounding. This is what turns him into a wounded Fisher King. The first touch of consciousness in a youth appears as a wound or as suffering. Parsifal finds his Garden of Eden experience by way of the bit of salmon. That suffering stays with him until his redemption or enlightenment many years later. Most Western men are Fisher Kings. Every boy has naively blundered into something that is too big for him. He proceeds halfway through his masculine development and then drops it as being too hot. Often, a certain bitterness arises because, like the Fisher King, he can neither live with the new consciousness he has touched nor can he entirely drop it. Every adolescent receives his Fisher King wound. He would never proceed into consciousness if it were not so. The church speaks of this wounding as the Felix Culpa, the happy fall, which ushers one into the process of redemption. This is the fall from the Garden of Eden, the graduation from naive consciousness into self-consciousness. It is painful to watch a young man realize that the world is not just joy and happiness, to watch the disintegration of his childlike beauty, faith, and optimism. It is regrettable but necessary. If we are not cast out of the Garden of Eden, there can be no heavenly
Holy Jerusalem. In the Catholic liturgy for Holy Saturday evening, there is a beautiful line, O happy fall that was the occasion for so sublime a redemption. The Fisher King wound may coincide with a specific event, an injustice such as being accused of something we didn't do. The injury of an injustice that awakens the adolescent to a reality that he isn't ready for is easy to map onto Batman. The death of the Waynes is exactly that, being traumatically awakened to the idea that the world doesn't make sense. For Superman, we can map this onto at least three different scenes. Obviously, there's the bus scene. It is unjust that in just trying to help, that he is scolded and his secret is at risk. But he has naively blundered into something too big for him. He has to put aside rescue until maturity. The next wound is the tornado scene. Again, he is touching an idea too big for him at the time. It's an idea that is deeper and more applicable than the you-can't-save-everyone lesson that critics lament like a broken record. No. The idea is that no one, no matter how powerful, can guarantee good outcomes. Being unable to save everyone is just a subset of that lesson, hamstrung by the implication that with enough power, like the power to turn back time, will abrogate or undo that lesson. That's not it. The issue isn't that Clark can't guarantee the rescue of his father. The issue is that Clark can't guarantee that his father's saved, and that his secret is kept, and that he obeys his father's loving will. The critic may choose a different two out of three vociferously, but that doesn't change the dilemma. Clark can only rescue Jonathan against his father's will. Just having the power to override free will doesn't make it the right choice. Clark has consistently believed that if he was just trying to help, it will be okay. And this is why BVS is such a crisis of faith for him. Just trying to help somehow always includes more complicated consequences. The third Fisher King wound for Superman are the early events of BVS. The injustice of being accused of something he didn't do, killing the men in Nairobi, acting against American interests, and participating in the bombing of Capitol Hill. These parallel an event in Young's autobiography, which you can read on your own sometime. As Johnson argues, however, all of these wounds are later healed and redeemed, and we'll discuss that later. As we said, there are three main origin stories for the Fisher King's wound. Here, Joseph Campbell elaborates on the jousting version of the wound. Now, the Grail King is in this story symbolic of the whole problem of the wasteland. The Grail King did not earn his position. He inherited it. He was a beautiful young man. And one fine day, he rode out of the palace with the war cry, Amor. That's all right for a nice young man, but it's not the proper intention of the keeper of the grail. The grail is the symbol of the highest spiritual fulfillment. So as he's riding out, he comes to a forest, and out of the forest comes riding a pagan knight, a knight from the Holy Land near the place of the Holy Sepulcher. And these two knights, they place their lances and ride at each other, and the grail king's Lance kills the pagan knight, and the pagan knight's lance castrates the king. Wolfram is telling us that the spiritual ideals of the Middle Ages, which distinguish supernatural from natural grace, has castrated Europe. The natural grace is not allowed. It is not what dictates life, the movement of the horse. It's this notion of some spiritual thing that comes by way of the cardinals of the church, and tells you what's good and what's bad. Nature has been killed in Europe. The energy of this is Wolfram's lesson, and he says it, has been killed. And the death of that pagan knight symbolizes it, and the impotence then, the spiritual impotence. 
acceptance of the Grail king is the consequence. He rides back in terrific pain to the court, and the pagan knight's lance had broken off, leaving the head of the lance in the wound. And when the head is withdrawn from the wound, on it is written the word, the grail. The meaning of this is the natural tendency of nature is to the spirit, whereas the Lord of the Spirit had rejected nature, the wasteland. How is the wasteland going to be cured? The answer is by the spontaneous act of a noble heart whose impulse is that not of ego, but of love. And love in the sense not of sexual love, but of compassion. That's the sense of the grail problem. In the battle between artificial structures meant to access spirituality versus natural impulses towards it, we can see a mirror of this in both of our films. In Man of Steel, this is most apparent with the death of Krypton, in contrast to the potential of humanity. Krypton dies because society has calcified and formalized to the point of foregoing natural birth, choice, and chance. The natural way of doing things has been replaced by dogmatic programming. By contrast, while the people of Earth stumble and fall, they have the potential to be greater than society intended. In Batman v Superman, again there is the battle between societal structures and Superman's natural impulses. Superman is pure of heart. He's just a guy trying to do the right thing, trying to help. But nonetheless, by the measures, strictures, and structures of society, his every action is subject to scrutiny, criticism, and judgment, which saps all the joy, vitality, and spontaneity out of Superman's selflessness. It renders the spiritual significance of his heroism impotent. Instead of serving to inspire, bring hope, and enlighten, his acts are viewed as calculated, cynical, and political. Superman resolves this dilemma by returning to nature and his inclinations, this time conscious of the issues. The third main source of the wound is supernatural punishment for defying the grail. Campbell briefly alluded to it. When the Fisher King was young, he charged out into battle saying more. In essence, he was trying to win favor with women based on his battlefield performance, and was divinely punished for it, as the keeper of the grail's motives must be more pure and divorced from the desires of the loins. Note it is not the case that this is wrong for knights generally, only wrong for the person who's called to keep the grail. Accordingly, we see this in BVS. I just don't know if it's possible. Don't know if what's possible? For you to love me and be you. The question of whether the Superman is permitted a personal love life is raised, and it's arguable that the Christopher Reeve films come to a different conclusion, which is why Superman can't be with Lois at the end of those films. In Man of Steel, his choice to be with Lois makes him susceptible to Lex's plan in Nairobi. Accordingly, it is the Fisher King wound that he receives and must deal with until he can reconcile the Superman with his love of Lois. And of course we know that's exactly what he does in the end, perhaps to the same conclusion as the Reeve films from a certain point of view. <laughs> Which is why it's so upsetting he has yet to rise, to provide a rebuttal to Superman as an eternal bachelor. Critics may be frustrated at this long, circular journey, which challenges the Superman mythos only to eventually end up where we had begun and always were. But this ignores the necessary evolution and maturation one needs to appreciate one's position consciously, not blissfully unaware, naive, or unconsciously oblivious. Again, Dr. Johnson. 
According to tradition, there are potentially three stages of psychological development for a man. The archetypal pattern is that one goes from the unconscious perfection of childhood to the conscious imperfection of middle life to conscious perfection of old age. One moves from an innocent wholeness, in which the inner world and the outer world are united, to a separation and differentiation between the inner and outer worlds with an accompanying sense of life's duality, then, at last, to enlightenment, a conscious reconciliation of the inner and outer in harmonious wholeness. We are witnessing the Fisher King's development from stage 1 to stage 2. One has no right to talk about the last stage until he has accomplished the second one. One has no right to talk about the oneness of the universe until he is aware of its separateness and duality. We can do all manner of mental acrobatics and talk of the unity of the world, but we have no chance of functioning truly in this manner until we have succeeded in differentiating the inner and outer worlds. We have to leave the Garden of Eden before we can start the journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. It is ironic that the two are the same place, but the journey must be made. A man's first step out of the Garden of Eden into the world of duality is his Fisher King wound, the experience of alienation and suffering that ushers him into the beginning of consciousness. Just as Martha says, <laughs> You know how he was. What do I need to travel for? I'm already there. Snyder's Superman was a deliberate effort to shake the mythos out of the unconscious childhood through the tribulations of midlife and into the enlightened elder, looking much as we always expected it to look, but having earned it and conscious of the journey. Batman, like the Fisher King, is still stuck between stage one and stage two, conscious to the woes of the world and all the pain that it brings, but still entertaining the delusions of his ten-year-old juvenile self that the path of the vigilante crime fighter is what's best in men, best in life, and a way to the light. This leaves Batman in a twilight of perpetual pain. Again, the Fisher King is described as being too ill to live but unable to die. That there is suffering and a haunting sense of injury and incompleteness in him. A man suffering in this way is often driven to do idiotic things to cure the wound and ease the desperation he feels. Usually, he seeks an unconscious solution outside of himself, complaining about his work, his marriage, or his place in the world. The Fisher King is carried about in his litter, groaning, crying in his suffering. There is no respite for him, except when he is fishing. This this is to say that the wound which represents consciousness is bearable only when the wounded is doing his inner work, proceeding with the task of consciousness which was inadvertently started with the wound in his youth. If it wasn't already apparent, Zack gives us some explicit echoes of these ideas in BVS. On unconscious solutions, he says, Yeah, like the idea that the drug of sex and the drug of drugs and the drug of alcohol, these are all things he uses to kind of dull the pain that he sort of lives with. That's why he hasn't really, doesn't really have a relationship, you know, outside of Alfred, you know. He's just had a hard time connecting because of this pain that he, that he lives with. So he uses relationships instead of as a way to find humanity in people, he uses them to sort of dull the pain of his own trauma that he deals with. Batman branding is another example of an idiotic cure attempted out of desperation. Batman carries inside of him searing pain, and hurt people hurt people. And so the brand allows him to project his eternal pain into something persistent, visible, and external as a faux means of doing the inner work and as a faux means of healing the wound. You can see his subconscious at work wanting to bring the pain to light, to work upon it. But external brands won't fix inner scars, and one-night stands won't fix his broken connections. However, an authentic confrontation of the issues can restore and heal. 
As Zack says, All those images are kind of wrapped together into death of Superman almost being this cathartic thing where the death of the Waynes was this thing that broke something, where this is the thing that could heal, even though it's a funeral. So we can see that Batman is deep inside his midlife crisis, one of the reasons that Batman was cast in his mid-40s for this story. There tends to be four signs or phases to a midlife crisis. First, dissatisfaction for no apparent reason. From an objective or external perspective, life is normal, satisfactory, or better. Nonetheless, there is this feeling of disillusionment at work, disenchantment with relationships, detachment from family responsibilities, and the growing fear of personal death. Second, superficial things simply don't work. Trying new things, trying change, or going back to old hobbies don't fix the feelings, although they may temporarily distract or alleviate them in the moment. Third, the questioning of everything. The foundations of your life, philosophy, family, faith, and so on. Fourth and finally, disliking what you see, the answers coming from questioning everything are ugly, disturbing, and hard. So we can see these signs as applying to Batman and Superman in BVS. For dissatisfaction, Batman has been fighting crimes for 20 years now, and he is very far from approaching his job like our light knight Batman 66. Instead, he is clearly disillusioned, doubting his accomplishments, and prepared to die fighting. We've already talked about the superficial things not working, the women dressed and alcohol still leave him angry and hurt. And so he has changed up his mission, going after Superman instead. But is there any evidence that any of this has made him less hurt? Batman questions everything explicitly and indicates he doesn't like what he sees. The hideous damsel is the carrier of doubt and despair, the destroying, spoiling quality that visits any intelligent man at midlife. The savor of life has gone. Unanswerable questions torment him. What is the use of going to the office? What difference does it make? What good is it? Why? Woman pleases him no more. His children are either difficult or gone. Vacations don't work anymore. Just when he begins to have the time and means for the pleasurable things of life, they are no longer meaningful. A little later, you'll learn who the hideous damsel is in the story of Percival, but for Batman, he counts himself a criminal. He feels that all good men have failed. He considers himself a glorified gardener, pointlessly pulling up weeds, and of course, in the Martha scene, he comes to confront his reasons for wanting to kill Superman. But this is the good news. If you're honest about the questions and what you see, you can start to exit the crisis by doing the deep inner work necessary. Which took me to the exercise, premeditatio malorum, which means the premeditation of evils. And in simple terms, this is visualizing the worst case scenarios in detail that you fear, preventing you from taking action so that you can take action to overcome that paralysis. Easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. The hard choices, what we most fear doing, asking, saying, these are very often exactly what we most need to do. And the biggest challenges and problems we face will never be solved with comfortable conversations, whether it's in your own head or with other people. So I encourage you to ask yourselves, where in your lives right now might defining your fears be more important than defining your goals? Keeping in mind all the while the words of Seneca, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Letting go of enabling mindsets and behaviors, or in the case of Batman, casting aside your spear. Eventually, this allows for transformation beyond imagination. And I would have loved to seen this transformation for these characters had the films continued. Well, I'm not going to walk through Superman. I think you can figure it out, but he has the same hallmarks of crisis. 
Much of modern literature revolves around the lostness and alienation of the hero. Moreover, we can see this alienation in the countenance of almost everyone we pass on the street. The Fisher King wound is the hallmark of modern man. And this is one of the reasons that BVS is an adult film. Because its central dilemmas aren't juvenile or adolescent, but these kinds of mature problems of middle age. Okay, the final psychological significance of the Fisher King wound we'll discuss is the concept of the wasteland. A waterless, barren wasteland. It's a barren wasteland. It's a wasteland now. This place is a wasteland. The world has become a horrific wasteland! Which is the idea that the king and the land are one. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. You and the land are one. This motif is found in our most ancient of texts and sources of wisdom. The idea is that your pain is not private, but pours out to the world around you, your environment, your community, your domain. The wasteland was that when the Fisher King was wounded, because of his wound, the land around him was made infertile and he dwelt in a wasteland. I think we have a, a kind of perhaps post-First World War view of a blackened landscape with dead trees and dying animals everywhere. If the story of the Fisher King was about fertility and picked up on some suggestions you find in the medieval text that when the king is maimed, it is very destructive, the castles fall down, the sky turns black and so on. And the idea that when the perfect hero, when the grail hero comes and asks the question, the king will be rejuvenated, he'll leap back into life, the land will burst into blossom, the crops will grow, the animals will give birth, and a general time of plenty will begin. In the Grail stories, of course, it's a once and for all, and often long postponed denouement to the story. In the story, while the king is unhealed, the land is cursed with death, famine, pestilence, and war. Crops won't grow, death is premature, and the king is unable to help his people in any way. The psychological, religious, and literary implications of this are countless and profound. As Aldo Leopold writes, all ethics, so far evolved, rest upon a single premise, that the individual is a member of a community of interdependent parts, soils, waters, plants and animals, or collectively, the land. For example, we could spend a lifetime just unpacking T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, a literary black hole one might never escape. <laughs> but instead, let's just take those lessons as implicit and just point out their obvious expression in these films. However, and I hesitate to do this, at least as a seed, let me share Campbell's summary of The Wasteland problem. The theme of the Grail is the bringing of life into what is known as the Wasteland. The wasteland is the preliminary theme to which the grail is the answer. Now, T.S. Eliot, in 1924, key poem, The Wasteland. What is the sense of the wasteland in medieval terms and in T.S. Eliot's terms? It's exactly the same sense. It's the world of people living inauthentic lives, doing what they're supposed to do. In the 12th century, they had to profess beliefs that they may or may not have held. They had to love in marriage people that they may or may not have learned to love. They had to behave this way, that way, the way the cardinals told them to behave. And as you'll see, when Parsifal fails in the Grail Adventure, he fails because he's doing what he's been told to do instead of what his heart told him to do. And why do you gotta have a job, so you have a job. People living the life that the society throws at them instead of an authentic life out of their own destiny feeling. 
Again, I'll say that the wasteland is an enormously rich area of study and interpretation, which I strongly recommend that you explore on your own. So please do not anchor everything to his perspective, but I provide it as a starting point to begin your journey, as Campbell himself says, Now what are you to do about instruction? You can get clues from people who have followed paths, but you have then to tear them off that, translate it into your decision. And there is no book of rules. That which we intend, that which is the journey, that which is the goal, is the fulfillment of something that never was on the earth before, namely your own potentialities. Every thumbprint is different from every other. Every cell and structure in your body is different from that of any that has ever been on earth before, so you have to work it out yourself. So this is a necessary but not sufficient condition, which is why I've made these episodes despite my hesitation. Yes, you must work it out yourself, but you need not start in alone. Even Campbell had help in the beginning. The Rage in Paris in the 1920s was a book by James Joyce entitled Ulysses, and Campbell could not understand it. He turned to Sylvia Beach, Joyce's publisher. She gave Campbell clues to the book's seemingly impenetrable structure. Joyce, like Picasso, was using mythological themes to express a modern vision. It was a revelation to Campbell. While in Europe, Campbell was introduced to the work of Carl Jung. By studying the dream images of his patients, Jung connected myth with dream for the first time. Jung's work would play a pivotal role in Campbell's understanding of the universal symbolism in mythology. Convinced of the parallels in myth, dream, and art, he left for home. So I went into a bookstore, and there was the blue Ulysses, and I started reading this thing. In chapter three, I thought I was going crazy. <laughs> I went around where Sylvia Beach, who had, who had published the book, was. And I walked in as an indignant academic person, saying, how do you read a thing like this? And she said as follows, and she gave me some information and some books to help me on my way. Consider that the great Joseph Campbell needed help to understand a work, needed to be set on the path of mythological themes by others. Imagine that before he became the champion of such approach, he started out as a critic, yet he was open enough to consider the answers which would launch his historic and influential career. When a work is literary, it is ridiculous to propose that it should be completely accessible and understood on first pass without any preparation, effort, understanding, or study. The critics who condemn this feature in BVS are like Campbell if he had refused Sylvia Beach's explanations. Campbell is not intending to say that you can only reach your potential by dispensing with instruction or assistance, rather, that you must not be penned in by it. Get your clues, but eventually work it out yourself. Instead of following a preordained checklist, what if you had choice and chance? Just as the ideas of fertility, reproduction, impotence, and rebirth abound around the Fisher King and the Wasteland, they are found throughout Man of Steel front and center, from the contrast between artificial reproduction against natural birth to the Codex and the Genesis Chamber, to all the symbols, figurative and literal, dealing with birth and reproduction. In Man of Steel, we see the Wasteland principle most starkly with Krypton, across multiple dimensions. We see it in the literal destruction of the planet. We see it in the death of the Kryptonian colonies. We see it in Jor-El and Lara as a product of Krypton, and we see it in General Zod. In each case, the adoption of artificial and societal mandates leaves the king impotent and his land perishes. 
The inflexibility of the Council leaves them powerless to reverse the course of Krypton's destruction. Everybody here is already dead. Being raised in Kryptonian culture leaves Jor-El and Lara powerless to raise Kal-El free of their culture's issues, and thus they cannot go with him. Why didn't you come with me? We couldn't, Cal. No matter how much we wanted to, no matter how much we loved you. Your mother, Lara, and I were a product of the failures of our world as much as so it was, tied to its fate. The colonies cannot thrive while Krypton remains sick. We sought out the old colonial outposts, looking for signs of life, but all we found was death. And the adoption of an artificial caste system means that General Zod bears a position that he did not earn, that he inherited from the Codex, a job society told him to do, leaving him powerless to do anything but the predispositions of his programming. I exist only to protect Krypton. That is the sole purpose for which I was born. And accordingly, death follows Zod and everything Zod touches. The ecological message of Man of Steel is not lost on its cast and crew. John Byrne's reimagining was they kind of screwed their ecology up. They don't have natural childbirth. You know, their birth is all just like the Genesis Chamber. It's a very good and appropriate kind of parallel to look at Krypton as the kind of ultimate expression of the way that we see what's happening to Earth. So you're allowing the audience a way into Krypton in this kind of extreme expression of self-destruction. We look around us in our world as it is now, and regardless of how many people deny what is fundamentally obvious, there's something changing. We're not just talking about you know, the gigantic concept of shifting weather patterns. You know, we're talking about the fundamental things like we've screwed up water sources. We've actually built buildings on the most fertile land in, in a lot of countries. You know, We've made some really stupid mistakes, but we can turn it around. And if this film puts that concept into the minds of young boys and young girls, the generation that's going to come forward and make the decisions going forward, then that's a wonderful thing. And if that's what you know, Superman means in this instance, Fantastic. I saw in the newspaper the other day that they found some planet very similar to Earth just outside of our solar system, apparently. And immediately I just started thinking about how, you know, somebody's probably going to try and go out and claim that for us when we're done ruining this place. I mean, I, I do think we needed to be put in a position where we genuinely understand how powerless we are and how fortunate we are to live on a planet that will facilitate our existence and how close we are to losing that. The depiction of the natural world was important to me in reference to Superman and in reference to, frankly, this notion of an alien living among us and that the natural world would be his way in, you know? He would have a close connection. I was trying to express that. In BVS, the wasteland is most obvious with Batman and Gotham City, the most tangible and direct representation of the wasteland in Bruce's life is in the deterioration of Wayne Manor. Once the family home of one of the world's most wealthiest families, Bruce has allowed it to fall apart. The walls crumbling, windows smashed out, overgrown and dirty. It stands as a reflection of his soul. Similarly, the descent of Gotham City, especially in comparison to Metropolis, is another indication that their king is wounded. In narrative logic, in story, the city pre-exists Batman, of course, but in mythological terms, the character comes 
first. The creation of Batman gave rise to Gotham, and so his city and he are one. The third symbol of the wasteland upon Batman is his infertility, the inability to procreate, just as Alfred constantly mentions. Not that there's likely to be a next generation. His Fisher King wound prevents him from having the relationships necessary to produce an heir. He's in his mid-40s and has no children or next generation to carry on for him. Robin's costume in the cave serves as a constant reminder of his Wasteland legacy. Of course, this means that Bruce bears other markings of Wasteland psychology, but we might explore that later. The Wasteland also appears more broadly between the unresolved domain of fathers and sons, something that sweeps up Batman, Superman, and Lex. Finally, we get a vivid visual depiction of the wasteland during the nightmare. You could not make it more explicit. Tyrant Superman is king. His knights bow before him. He is wounded beyond belief. His world has been taken from him. And accordingly, we see that his domain is a literal wasteland. There isn't a hint of greenery, water, or life. There's no plants! There's no plants in sight! Instead, the bay has dried up, marked with an apocalyptic symbol, and the world is fit only for death and violence. Anti-life, even. Now, if a part of you is frustrated that the symbolism and parallels seems to be applicable across characters, rather than remaining a perfect one-to-one relationship, say, with Superman as Percival and Batman as the Fisher King, remember that even in the comic book mythos, the world's finest are two sides of the same coin. And by the same token, we have Percival and the Fisher King. Rather that this is inner psychology. And this, of course, takes us back from the social to the individual. And in some ways, the grail has now become not something which rejuvenates the land and rejuvenates culture, but will rejuvenate the individual. I think perhaps in modern psychological thinking about the grail text, Percival and the Fisher King have become fused, that it's the job of the maimed modern person to go searching through life to find out their identity, how they fit into the grail family, and to find the grail. But when they find the grail, it's going to produce a kind of integrated psychic wholeness for the individual who will no longer be maimed or be a fully realized human being. Note that this is not just modern thinking, but the thinking of practically every grail writer. More on that later. For now, let's continue with our story. Percival has come to the magical Grail Castle. He arrives at the castle. It's received with great expectation. The people who are enchanted know how the enchantment is to be lifted, but they can't lift it. The one who is to lift the enchantment does not know how it is to be lifted, but by his spontaneous act, he does the thing that has to be done. So these people know that a knight will come and through the proper act, lift the enchantment. They think, here he is. I mean, this beautiful boy. So Percival is welcomed and received. The Grail King is brought in on a bed, unable to sit nor stand nor lie. And the Grail procession begins. Mysterious things begin to happen in the castle of the Fisher King. Finally, Percival and we are ready to meet the Grail. Percival is simply having dinner at the castle of the Fisher King. It's quite an ordinary dinner, if a very luxurious one. Then suddenly, this happens. A squire came forth from a chamber, carrying a white lance. Everyone in the hall saw the white lance with its white point, from whose tip there issued a drop of blood, and this red drop flowed down to the squire's hand. Then two other knights entered, holding in their hands candelabra of pure gold. A maiden, accompanying the two young men, was carrying a grail. She was beautiful, 
noble and richly attired. After she entered the hall carrying the grail, the room was so brightly illumined that candles lost their brilliance, like stars in the moon when the sun rises. The grail passed by like the lance. They passed in front of the bed and into another chamber. That's it. That's the first time the grail ever appears in literature. And the chief thing we're supposed to think about this scene is that it's enigmatic. Mystery is piled on top of mystery. Why is the lance bleeding? What is this grail? Why has it been carried through the room? Why is it at the castle of the Fisher King and who exactly is the Fisher King? Remember that in the first scene of the story of the grail, Percival learned about objects by asking questions about them. This scene also invites us to ask questions about it. And yet, instead... And the boy, here's the tea now, this is the crisis of the story. Parsifal is filled with compassion and is moved to ask what ails you. And immediately he thinks a knight does not ask questions. And so in the name of his social image, he continues the wasteland principle of acting according to the way you've been told to act instead of the way of the spontaneity of your noble nature. The adventure fails. Now note, Percival still had in mind to ask his questions just later and in private. He believed that he could still get his answers without losing face, not knowing the implications of his calculation. King is very cordial, polite. Everyone knows what's happened. He doesn't. The king gives him a sword as a present. The host presents a present to his guest. It's a sword which is going to break at a critical moment, just as he broke at a critical moment. He's ushered to his room, put sweetly to bed, gets up in the morning. There isn't a soul in the castle. The place is completely quiet. He looks out the window. There's his horse with his lance and shield. He doesn't know what's happened. After he rides out of the castle, he turns around to find that it's disappeared. So a quick comment on the logic of enchantment before we carry on to the analysis of this episode. While the nature of enchantment seems a little absurd, it's actually more intuitive if you use a more mundane example. Consider the surprise gift. There, the would-be recipient already knows what they want, but there's a difference between requesting that gift and the gift being given spontaneously out of love and thoughtfulness, just as there's a difference between the Superhuman Registration Act and the spontaneous sacrifice of one's life for the sake of the world. It would never work or mean the same thing if the terms were dictated to Superman and he simply dutifully followed. Rather, the pure submission of his life life acts to lift the curse against the conception of the superhero. Perhaps there was something that Superman could have said or done spontaneously that would have lifted the curse sooner, but he was too mindful of his image. What did the Superman mean? How to ensure that the Superman was being seen in the best and correct light? Like with the Grail Castle, you only get one shot. If you miss that first opportunity, the castle fades away, the magic is lost, and your subsequent actions lack the mystical initial spontaneity. We afford such spontaneous actions a greater weight of authenticity, sincerity, and veritas. We treat the actions of the heart as something more real and central to your character than the deliberative actions of the mind. And so, if you disappoint by failing to provide the surprise gift and have to be told, any future surprise gift will be seen as a cynical calculation attempting to correct this past failure, and it becomes impossible to recreate the moment. 
At least this is the typical law of enchantment. What sets Percival and Superman apart from the typical hero is a refusal to accept or believe that law. They are determined to return to the castle, rectify their mistake, and heal the Fisher King. Despite the typical law, they have hope. As Zack recently commented, I think that's why I love Superman so much, because it's always, even in his darkest moments, he has this optimism about humanity, even that we don't have. Another thing I want to highlight is that Percival's failure was a duty to ask, not know. The enchantment lifts if Percival merely asks the questions, whom does the grail serve and why does the lance bleed? He wasn't responsible for knowing the answers. His failure lies in failing to ask the questions. This is a hallmark of the transition to the next stage of life. You shouldn't be blamed for not knowing what you don't know, but at a certain point, you are responsible to ask. And when you do, it begins to unearth and expose things that you had taken for granted, misunderstood, and were blind to. And there are so many autonomous processes in each of us that are constantly, in some way, critiquing our lives. And the the real effort is to try to undertake a dialogue with those other elements that are making choices for us. Of course, you know, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious, so we can't say very much about it. And yet, uh, so much of it keeps spilling into the world on a daily basis, harming our children, ourselves or partners or whomever. And so it's about a kind of accountability to one's own psychological reality and a responsibility for what spills into the world through us and an effort to dialogue with the depths of the human soul and the psyche. If you don't ask the question in the Grail Castle, you will enter the next stage of life questioning everything. This can mean the pain of revelation or the delight of enlightenment. Too often, people expect the answers to be obvious and clear, and their questions are insincere, simply restatements of their criticisms with a question mark at the end. Nearly all quote-unquote plot hole questions are presented in this manner, using the rhetorical fallacy of begging the question to make a point rather than actually being an open-minded inquiry. And yet they are robbing themselves of one of the most rewarding experiences of the work. On Stanley Kubrick's 2001. In looking back at the legacy of 2001 A Space Odyssey, what amazes me, the lack of exposition feels so out of sync with science fiction today, where the stories are jam-packed, and if a plot point isn't explained enough to satisfy the fans, the filmmakers will never hear the end of it, on social media or at Comic-Con panels. Katarina is glad that her father did not go in that direction. Stanley didn't treat his audience as fools. That's why he was so careful. That's why he was so particular with details, because he didn't, you know, he gave respect to the audience. Look, this is my very best effort. This is what I think. Make of it what you will. And people respond to not being taken for fools. And if you explain something totally, it'll take the mystery away. Barbara Miller said to me, you know, when people were walking out of the theater in 1968 and they said, what does it all mean? The movie is designed for you to ask those kinds of questions. These are big questions. This question of, is there life out there? What's the future of humankind? Stanley Kubrick doesn't know the answers to those questions. This film doesn't know the answers to those questions. Everyone makes those decisions for themselves. And, you know, the film provides an opportunity for you to sit and consider those things. And it leaves space for you as a viewer to engage in those questions. And I think that that is sort of the ultimate reason why we're still watching it and talking about it. 
layered literary works like life can be interrogated eternally and continue to yield rewards, but we don't have an eternity. (laughs) And so I have to abridge this story significantly. But suffice to say, Percival goes through the darkest moments of his life over the next few years, as all his earlier adventures come under questioning. In one episode, He comes upon a sorrowful maiden holding her dead lover in her arms. She explains tearfully that her knight's lover was killed by another knight in a rage over something Parsifal had done in one of his earlier naive escapades. Parsifal has to bear the guilt of this. The maiden explains his grail castle failure to him, and he's told it's his fault that the Fisher King's suffering continues and that the wasteland grows. He's told that his mother is dead and that no one can see the grail castle twice. Parsifal learns that he can never return to the Grail Castle. One never will see it again. He learns that the one who has not asked the question spontaneously on first coming can never arrive again. If only he had asked, whom does the Grail serve and why does the lance bleed? The curse would have been lifted, convicted. Percival vows never to sleep in the same place twice until he has found the Grail and Lance again. This means that he spends years separated from Blanche Fleur, restlessly wandering. Meanwhile, he's still doing the work of a knight. Parsifal conquers many knights, sends them back to Arthur's court, rescues many fair damsels, lifts sieges, protects the poor, slays dragons, all the good things a man must do in the middle section of his life. But everything is tinged with futility. By most measures, he's a success, and acclaimed for being a great knight, doing what he ought to do. But during this period, what had seemed like unqualified triumphs at his start upon conscious review bring to light unintended costs, blunders, or shame. Everything was easier when he was unconscious and naive, but awakened he sees nothing was ever easy. Parsifal goes on to another weeping damsel who has also suffered much through some naive mischance from his earlier travels. This damsel informs Parsifal that his sword will break the first time he uses it, and that it can be mended only by him who forged it originally. Once repaired, it will never break again. Her prophecy is a remark about the socially constructed values passed from father to son. The masculine equipment he carries with him, largely imitation of the father teachers around him, will not hold up when he tries to use it by himself. Every youth has to go through the humiliation of finding that his imitation masculinity will not hold up. And more, only the father who gave him his sword can repair the broken instrument. This means that what was given by a father can be repaired only by a father. Isn't this exactly what we see in BVS? This is the essence of Clark's heartbreak after the bombing. All this time been living my life the way my father saw it, writing wrongs for a ghost, thinking I'm here to do good. Superman was never real, just the dream of a farmer from Kansas. Clark was just doing what his father instructed, but it gets broken by the bombing because it isn't his yet. But when it's repaired by Jonathan on the mountaintop, it truly becomes his and unbreakable. But poor Percival is still experiencing his parade of embarrassment. He encounters a lady whose life was devastated by his earlier actions, smashing into a building, doing his best according to what he had believed he had been taught, trying to observe the best and highest values as he had been instructed, but nonetheless ruining this lady's life unseen, completely unaware of the collateral damage to her life. This was an adventure early in his 
his career, where he'd follow the advice of his mother without context or any understanding of its complexities. For example, he would enter into and worship in many a building, not a church, eat many a meal not intended for him, based on advice like, don't forget to go to church and eat right. During this period, he had come barreling into this lady's building, made a mess of her bed, and ate a meal meant for her lord. And while Percival left feeling full and happy, the lady's lord returned and accused her of infidelity, and she's been shamed and made to suffer for her alleged unfaithfulness all this time. Fortunately, Percival is able to clear her name through combat, and send the defeated lord as yet another vassal to serve Arthur. The collateral damage of one's well-intended past returning to haunt you should sound familiar to BVS fans. This is, of course, the role played by Superman's accusers, especially Kahina Ziri and Wallace Keefe. As a further parallel, in all cases there is an element of misinformation and then exoneration. The lady is accused of infidelity, but is cleared by Percival's word and the besting of her lord in battle. Kahina's claims are scripted, but she comes clean with Senator Finch exonerating Superman, and Wallace Keefe is accused of being an intentional bomber, but cleared by Lois's subsequent investigation. Consider the confusion of our characters during this dark time. For Percival, his greatest shame and failure came from following the advice of his mentor and master, the old knight, who had instructed him in chivalry and the ways of society. By listening to the old knight, he had inherited the weakness of the slain red knight, been bound by social conventions, and failed to follow his curiosity, his nature, and ask the spontaneous question that would have lifted the curse. But the parade of weeping damsels also illustrate the value of everything the old knight had taught him. In his adventures before his instruction, he had thought himself a success, a triumph. But only now is he conscious to the living wrecking ball he had been the entire time. If only he had been instructed by the old knight before and followed his teachings, Percival would not have left all this collateral in his wake. So which is it? Why can't it be as simple a lesson as the old knight was right or the old knight was wrong? Why don't the grail writers spoon feed us a more simple moral message? Just wish it was more simple. And I hope you hear the echoes, the parallel theme to our story in BVS. Surely you can see the similar dilemma faced by Superman. The tornado scene could be seen as a version of Clark's first grail castle. We know what Clark's spontaneous self wants to do. We've already seen the hero that he'll be at the oil rig. That rescue is in his nature. That's what the bus scene shows us. That's what the discussion in the car before the tornado is about. We see that even up to the last second, Clark wants to run out there. But after the bus rescue, Clark had been following his old man's advice. He had been thoughtful and safe, careful to conceal his powers. And here, in this decisive moment, he might have had the opportunity to introduce a 17-year-old superboy to the world, or he might heed his father and suppress that nature, right? And so, from a certain point of view, Clark suppressed his instincts just as Percival suppressed his urge to ask questions, and Clark fails the adventure. Now, note, as we mentioned earlier, that this is the unavoidable Felix Culpa, or Happy Fall. So this is something that everyone goes through while on the Western journey. 
Asterisk for the East. I've said to people, you know, look, the first half of life, speaking very loosely, is pretty much a gigantic, unavoidable mistake. And they laugh because they think I'm making fun of it, but I'm not. It's like, go live your life, create a life, make mistakes, but then try to figure them out. And then realize, okay, life is to some degree experimentation. But then you realize, okay, I tried this job. I mean, many times people work very hard in school or to prepare for a certain profession or something. And I mean, I've worked with so many very unhappy lawyers, for example or a number of frazzled doctors or a number of other people who worked hard to achieve a professional identity. And then in the end, they find themselves burnt out or they find themselves utterly bored with what they're doing. And it's not that they did something wrong. It's that they were serving an agenda that was not appropriate for the rest of their journey. And rather than see this as a huge disappointment and defeat, one has to say, all right, it is what it is. It was what it was. And now I have to figure out what the next journey is about. And that could be a tremendous opportunity for redefining oneself and for taking new directions. So having learned from his first Grail Castle, older and wiser, Clark at 33 now acts out of his nature, his instincts, his heart, his gut, whatever you want to call his spontaneous spirit. And he's victorious. He saves the world. He's renowned for it. People build him statues and hail him as hero. He's a successful flying man in the sky, and this seems to be his reward. But somehow, this gets him into trouble as well. The Black Zero event, the BZE, was his triumph, the reason they raised a monument in his honor. But that's where Wallace Keefe's life was torn apart. In Nairobi, Clark absolutely follows his heart, but gets entangled in a web of intrigue that threatens to undo all his work. And when Lois confronts him about her rescue, the same way Jonathan confronted Clark about the bus rescue, you can almost see the same response come forth. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? The woman I love could have been blown up or shot. Think of what could have happened. Is the answer to act spontaneously or with deliberation and care? Which is it? Why isn't it more simple? And for many critics, the answer is simple. Obviously, the old knight and Jonathan were wrong. Don't we all know that you're just supposed to be yourself? So anyone suppressing your spontaneous self must be in the wrong. This certainly seemed to be Campbell's take on the story, but remember the context of Campbell's insights came in support of 60s counterculture against the constrictive conformity of 1950s America. Let's just say that his emphasis relates to its time, just like the story of Superman 78 served a different time than today. So for the sake of that narrative, Campbell tends to denigrate the old knight too much. But was this the intention of Cratian, who was a part of the royal court, or Wolfram, who was himself a knight? Would they really be so critical of the old knight for indoctrinating Percival into the ideals of chivalry, exactly as this story was meant to do? Were they really trying to tear society asunder? Well, returning to our master themes of complexity and balance, let's look at whether the motives or advice of our adoptive fathers, the old knight and Jonathan, is really worthy of such derision. So do we have any signs of malice in these mentors against their mentees? Are they men of bad character? No, quite to the contrary. Cratian's account comments on the old knight's good character. 
but beyond the attestment to his good character, he shows it by his good actions. The old knight takes Percival in as a guest and shows him every hospitality. Expecting nothing in return, he patiently teaches Percival everything it takes to be a knight. Only in later versions of the story does the old knight want Percival to become his son by marrying his daughter. And while that could count as a motive, it still represents a love of Percival, who is a nobody with nothing to his name. Yet the old knight is still willing to invest in this youth without expectation, and blesses Percival even when he declines the marriage and decides to leave. The old knight does not think Percival owes him anything. He just would have liked Percival to stay. Everything in the old knight's advice to Percival is intended for his success, to equip Percival to be the best possible knight he can be. There is no social agenda per se. The old knight relates what's necessary to be a good knight in said society. Similarly, despite what critics may allege, nothing in story suggests Jonathan is anything but a loving father. Nothing in the world requires that you adopt an alien, put up with his powers, protect him from prying eyes and government capture, love him as your own, and not exploit or abuse his power or nature for yourself. Even if the Kents were purely passive parents, which they weren't, they're already stellar, if only for all the evil they didn't do with or to Clark, owing this alien invader absolutely nothing. Instead, they literally love him as their own. You are my son. My baby boy. I miss you, son. They raise him with American values, Christian principles, an open mind, and a great destiny. Everything in Jonathan's advice to Clark is intended for his success, to equip Clark to be the best man that he can be. There is no societal agenda per se. Jonathan merely relates what's necessary to make it to manhood in said society. Now next, consider this context to their advice. At what stage of development are Percival and Clark? If you remember our earlier conversation, on this, it must be said that they're in their unconscious youth. The advice is not being given to the complications of a conscious middle-aged man or the enlightened elder. No, they're novices, newbies, oblivious teens, and accordingly it is obvious that the advice will be a suppression of their spontaneous selves. It's only logical. At this stage, the youth is unconscious to the structures and realities of the world, so they just do what they will. And if that's something aligned with this world, nothing needs to be said. If the child naturally eats their greens, there's nothing to teach. It's only when the child's impulses run afoul the world do the mentors have to mention what will happen. If the child doesn't look both ways before crossing the street, the parent has a duty to teach how to act in a society where drivers don't expect kids to suddenly step out into the middle of the street. Note that this instruction is dependent on societal expectation. In a society without cars or where drivers expect pedestrians to leap out into the street at a moment's notice, the duty to instruct is different. The advice is always for the benefit of the child, to better integrate with society and run together. And as most of this societal information is collective, aggregated, and taken for granted, practically unconscious, it sometimes requires the naive, the fish out of water, the alien, the immigrant, the strange visitor, to remind us of our implicit assumptions and givens. These films and their characters tackle this thoughtfully. This is why Jor-El removes himself from Cal's upbringing. 
because he knows his advice can't help but service the society that created him, even despite his own countercultural tendencies. He'll be an outcast, a freak. They'll kill him. Oh, he'll be a god to them. Imagine if Cal had been raised on Earth with a god complex, instead of the humbleness instilled by the Kents. Jorel's speeches are ambitious but impersonal. They could be said to anyone with power, but Jonathan's speeches are intimate and personal. They only make sense to the son he raised. It's a little maddening to see how critics contort these conversations. We tell our kids to brush their teeth, do their homework, or say please and thank you for their sake. Of course, even if parents are conduits of societal expectations, if society is sick, maybe the advice is too. Just as Jorel recognized the issue within himself, maybe the old knight and Jonathan were misguided. Well, Jonathan's advice has been defended countless times on this show before, and its wisdom is more intuitive. In sum, he asks Clark to think before he acts. His advice isn't so trite as to demand Clark seek good outcomes. That's already a given between them that Clark has the heart of a hero, that he wants to help, that he grew up with good values. The model I use is kids that grow up in farming communities because those parents are never quarreling with their kids about responsibilities because the kid views responsibility as essential to the family functioning, to the community functioning. The question is, what impact will my actions have given that I want good outcomes for everyone? Jonathan's challenge is that even good intentions and immediate action will not always bring good outcomes for all. Unless you're living in a dream world, this is completely sound advice, and exactly the parent's duty to point out the consequences of the actions to the naive stage one youth. If you don't brush your teeth, you might get cavities. If you don't do your homework, you make life harder later. If you use your powers, your secret may get out. If you hit that kid, you'll hurt your character. Think. Choose. Decide. Because you're gonna change the world. Set aside the superhero tropes and we wouldn't hesitate to call this sensible advice to a minor in your care. So, on first blush, Jonathan is good, his motives are good, and his advice is good. The old knight's advice takes a little more effort to explain. Superficially, telling Percival to stay silent for appearances' sake is objectionable to our modern sensibilities, and that's because appearances play a different role in our society than theirs. We get our security and identity from self, and so we recoil at any suppression of the authentic self. But the medieval period was heavily hierarchical, meaning that security and identity came from society. Note that the round table is exceptional for its time precisely because it's an anomaly, the seed of an idea yet to fruit. You can live and die a peasant, a knight, or a noble, knowing your station in life in relationship to everyone else. There's no striving up and down the social ladder or a search for identity because it's already been prescribed. This also means that there's a great deal of paternalism in this hierarchy. Peasants outsource their safety and defense to their lord and his knights, and that paternal dependency explains the importance of appearances. As parents, we're filled with worries and dilemmas which would be improper to dump upon our dependents. Since we provide for our children's sense of security and well-being, it's generally not right to blow that up in the name of authenticity. 
Anna only found that out a couple years ago when she asked her dad about it. At the time, back when she was 14, her parents kept all that from her and her brother and sisters. They didn't want them to dwell on it or make them afraid of the world. They didn't want that evening to become a bigger deal than it already was. And Anna says today, that worked. And it's funny, I've even as I've like told this story over the years, people are like, oh, that's so traumatic or that's crazy. I don't think of it like that. How so? It just was sort of like a, because nothing bad happened, it has no category for me that makes sense it was it's been easier it was easier to just think like oh this one this weird thing happened one night in retrospect would you have preferred if they had told you back when you were 14 no i think it's good that i got to live in a world that i think is safe the less paternalistic and more equal the relationship the less this applies but in percival's time everyone looked up to him depended on him and expected his competence and protection if percival goes around looking like a fool asking questions that even commoners can answer their sense of security is thrown into disarray. How can we trust a man who doesn't even know what a tent is? How can we trust a lord that makes a fool a knight? If his battalions are filled with fools, are we really protected and safe? And if we're not safe, why should we continue with this society? And so on. The old knight is of course protective of Percival and his career, but perception is very much a part of that career. In fact, taking a moment to think about how you appear to others is relevant wisdom even 800 years later. Adam Grant is a psychiatrist, author, and Wharton professor of organizational psychology. His show is filled with more disclaimers, details, nuance, and illustrations, and I highly recommend checking it out yourself, but we're going to hit just the takeaways for the sake of concision. So this is guideline number one. Authenticity without boundaries is careless. Be careful that the vulnerability you choose to show doesn't cast doubt on your competence. If you haven't already demonstrated that you're capable, though, showing vulnerability can have the opposite effect. Take a recent study of lawyers interviewing for jobs. Focusing on expressing themselves only increased their odds of getting a job offer if their resumes had already impressed the interviewer. The only lawyers who benefited from being authentic were the ones who'd been ranked in the top 10% of candidates going into the interview. And for lawyers in the bottom half of the resume pool, striving to be themselves in the interview decreased their chances of landing jobs. This isn't unique to lawyers. The results were similar for teachers, too. The old knight does not want Percival to disqualify himself as a knight before he's even started. In order for people in distress to call out and depend upon him, he must be perceived as a knight. Understanding that authenticity without boundaries is careless should be second nature to superhero fans who know secret identity dynamics. We've got the fair unknown, la belle inconnue, and that's really when knights rock up in disguise at tournaments and things like that. And everyone, It's a bit like Clark Kent when he puts his glasses on and no one knows he's Superman. This is going on in medieval romance. That's where they get it from, right? Marvel and DC. Clark doesn't come out of the gate with his identity, but after he's established his bona fides, once he's quite literally saved the world, he is then intentionally vulnerable with General Swanwick and gives him a clue to his identity. I grew up in Kansas, General. That trust is eventually rewarded in BVS as Swanwick backs Lois's exoneration of Superman. Clark doesn't just tell everyone his identity or of his parents in a live broadcast. That level of boundless authenticity is careless, and Lex shows what can be done with such information. Okay, on to the next point. This is guideline number two. Authenticity without empathy is selfish. I often hear people explain their actions by saying, well, I was just being myself. That's not an excuse for disrespectful behavior. Sure, we should be true to our values, but we might want to consider others' values too. Or as David Sedaris puts it, 
be yourself unless yourself is an asshole. One of the problems with the bring your whole self to work framing is that it's narcissistic. <laughs> what about taking an interest in the other person? Sometimes people get so absorbed in expressing their own opinions that they lose sight of how they affect others. In Leah's view, focusing less on authenticity has made her more effective. I think I've become a lot more, some might call it mature, in how I talk to people. You know, because there are consequences. Like, if you're just focused on being yourself. You're not focused on anyone else. It's common to think of of authenticity is something that's all about me. How do I express myself in the world? But other people have to be part of that equation. Authenticity can't exist in a vacuum. I found in my research that concern for others is a critical ingredient for effective authenticity. So again, the old knight knows Percival is curious and inquisitive and would love to speak up and ask questions. Nonetheless, as we've explained, the satisfaction of Percival's curiosity comes at the cost of instability, uncertainty, and fear in others. A knight that knows boundaries, rules, expectations, and perceptions will abide by them. They're a known quantity that you can rely upon, be protected by, and they live up to expectations. But a knight who doesn't know anything could do anything sowing distrust, doubt, and insecurity. The old knight takes the position that the entire point of a knight is to serve the people in distress and in need. His advice is meant to make Percival effective at that. This was Jonathan's admonition to Clark from the start. Not that he think about himself, but that he think about his impact upon others and the world. All in furtherance of Clark's pure-hearted desire to help, not to frustrate it. Okay, lastly... And so this is guideline number three. Authenticity without status and trust is risky. Before you challenge organizational culture, it helps to demonstrate your loyalty first. There's a special kind of status that allows you to get away with nonconformity. In psychology, it's called idiosyncrasy credit. Once you prove your value to your group, you earn a license to deviate from expectations. Research backs this up. A series of experiments show that trying to wield power before earning status tends to breed conflict with colleagues and superiors. Again, this is the old knight helping Percival to foster the perception that his values align with the world. Even if Percival's questions or approach are entirely justified or right, without status or trust, it merely appears confrontational, like somebody intending to tear down society rather than amend or improve it. If Superman had started his career causing international incidents, he absolutely would be viewed with more hostility and skepticism than the path that he took. Showing loyalty by standing with humanity against the Kryptonians, developing status by saving the world, and building trust by routinely rescuing lives in an uncontroversial way, this shows that he understands our values, that we're in alignment, and then we can trust him when he has an authentic proposal to change our outlook towards supremely powerful metahumans. While our default would be unrelenting cynicism, Superman doubling down on sacrifice shifts society's perspectives on the concept of the superhero, no longer something to endlessly critique, but something to hope in. As Adam summarizes, you can see the wisdom and intention in the old knight's advice. Look, you shouldn't have to hide your opinions and emotions at work, or your ideas and identities. But it doesn't hurt to reflect on the many different selves that are already part of who you are, and the selves you might become as you evolve. It makes sense to be thoughtful about which ones you share, and when, where, and how you express them. After all, you want to be authentic, but you also want to be professional. To set smart boundaries, show empathy, and not just challenge norms, but earn the license to change them. 
You don't have to bring your whole self to work. I think effective authenticity is more about bringing your best selves to work. The ones that bring out the best in others, too. But as we said before, life is complex, and there's no one-size-fits-all simple solution to everything. Advice that is well-intended and helpful in one context or stage of life can be disastrous in another, and coming to understand and experience this can be confusing and disillusioning. Because, you know, in the first half of life, one could say, and this is somewhat of an overgeneralization, but I think it's true, we all have to sort of address, what is the world asking of me? You know, what do my parents want? What do the school teachers want? What does the employer want? What does your partner want? I mean, well, this is a task that my environment is speaking to me, and we throw ourselves into it. it good faith. And that's important. It helps build enough ego strength and it builds enough maturation and hopefully personal accountability that allows us to ask those questions later when the bottom seems to fall out. So you're right. It's at three in the morning, the hour of the wolf, as it's called, that one often is, is stricken with the sense of futility or sense of emptiness or basic fear. And out of that can come a different life. It's not necessarily something we want to do. It's something that life is asking of us. It can cause some to fight back and rebel, others to give up and to quit. For Percival and Superman, while their faith and understanding is shaken, they keep doing the work. Yet there's a certain hollowness to it after Nairomi for Superman or after the Grail Castle for Percival. Parsifal spends many years, most of the legends say, 20, on his nightly adventures. He grows more bitter, more disillusioned. He grows farther away from his beloved Blanchefleur. He forgets why he wields his sword in his night's journey. He functions with less and less understanding and joy. These are the dry years of a man's middle age. He knows less and less why he is functioning and is apt to give an evasive answer when asked about the meaning of his life. Note that our 800-year-old story of the ideal knight was more concerned with a sincere depiction of such crisis than ensuring Percival smiles and spires and is cheery while doing the work just to make the audience feel good. PVS shows Superman doing the work but is similarly troubled. And just like Percival's separation from Blanche, Superman is separated from Lois for a good portion of the story. This separation puts Percival into a love trance, where he sits, his thoughts transfixed upon her. And around this time, the Court of Camelot had hit the road, searching high and low for the Red Knight, who had been sending all these new knights into their service. One day, the court comes across Percival, who's just sitting there on his horse, unmoving and refusing to respond to any hail or call. This is taken as a threat or an insult. And so, one by one, King Arthur sends his knights to go deal with this mute figure. And one by one, the entranced Percival just beats the tar out of everyone they send never even acknowledging their presence or their words, just automatically beating them up. He is transfixed and can think of nothing but Blanche Fleur. King Arthur's men find him in this immobile state, and two of them try to lead him to Arthur's court. He fights them off, breaking the arm of one. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off! This might sound a little similar to the side-eyed scene in Justice League. Superman, not quite all there, not totally intelligible, just schooling all the heroes sent at him until, well, you've seen Justice League, so you might have an idea of what happens with Percival. The one who finally stops Percival is Sir Gwaine who recognizes him as being in a love trance, and so he dips into his utility belt, breaks the trance, and welcomes Percival to join the Knights of the Round Table. At this, the whole caravan rejoices and celebrates, and a three-day tournament in Percival's honor is thrown. 
and yet a supernaturally hideous woman appears to dampen the festivities. She is the Grail Messenger. She recites all Parsifal sins and stupidities, the worst being his failure to ask the healing question in the Grail Castle. Parsifal is humbled and left silent before the court that only a moment before had been praising him to the sky. Headline. End of love affair with man in the sky? Question mark. With the certainty of sunset, the hideous damsel will walk into a man's life just when he has reached the apex of his accomplishment. There is some strange correlation between the achievement of a man and the power of the hideous damsel in his life. The greater the height, the greater his capacity for suffering and humiliation seems. The amount of fame and adulation one gets in the outer world seems to determine the sense of failure and meaninglessness he will find at the hands of the hideous damsel. One would guess that accomplishment would be the surest protection against meaninglessness, but this is not so. It is the accomplished man who is most capable of asking unanswerable questions about his worth and the meaning of his life. The questioning, often called the dark night of the soul in medieval theology, has an uncanny way of claiming one at two or three o'clock in the morning. Someone observed darkly that it is always 2am when one is in the dark night of the soul. Accordingly, we see why Superman's monument or Bruce Wayne's billions fail to console them against the questioning of their careers. While returning to the the Grail Messenger after she's humiliated Percival in front of King Arthur's court by relating all of his failures, she implores King Arthur to find the Grail in the Bleeding Lance. And so, to heal the wounded king and restore the wasteland, they agree. It is their Christian duty. For Arthur, it is a bittersweet moment because Percival is the perfection of the round table. The Grail Knight has finally come and filled the seat of danger, the final empty place completing the table. But now, as the knights go off to find the Grail, some never to return, the table will never be complete again. And we will return to this juncture next episode, but here is where the story and we turn our focus to Gawain. It's funny that in a story called The Percival or the Grail, much of it is actually focused on another knight, Sir Gawain and his quest for the Bleeding Lance. Almost as funny as Superman co-starring in the sequel to Man of Steel. <laughs> I said that the title of this romance is Percival, but in fact, only about half of the romance is actually about Percival. The other half features the adventures of another knight, Sir Gawain. So it's obvious that Superman is to Percival as Batman is to Gawain. I mean, he's the caped crusader, the dark knight, and it's right there in the name. Bruce Wayne Gawain, right? <laughs> Unconvinced? Well... As Superman is to Batman, Percival is to Gawain. Percival is more than ever linked with Gawain. So you get this idea of Percival as being the spiritual knight, the knight who finds the grail and embodies all of chivalry. And Gawain, much more the kind of knight of the worldly chivalry. And he's the ladies' man. I mean, he's a womanizer, is Gawain. And mm. He is really always after the girls. So we can parallel the pairs in terms of their morals, their powers, and their relationships. Superman is traditionally perceived as the Boy Scout, the paragon of virtue, while Batman is willing to break the rules and work from the shadows. Superman is more regarded as an ideal and supernatural, while Batman is considered more realistic and grounded. In terms of their relationships, Superman is more reliably paired with Lois in committed monogamy, as Percy is to Blanche, while with Batman... Pretty girl, bad habit. Don't quote me, alright? But I know she wouldn't like you. Moreover, in medieval terms, he's a middle-aged womanizer already twice the marrying age and past his prime. Uncle Wayne's around 36 or so. He's been around. He's known as the Ladies' Knight. I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. 
<laughs> and BVS sets up a similar dynamic with Ben in his 40s while Gal was in her 20s. But with Sir Gowan, we have a character that's clearly much older. And so we talked about the similar names, sharing story time, acting as foils, the womanizing, and the age parallels. Let's just cover three more. First, their flaws. Next, their reputation and redemption. And finally, the spear. And while I'm the last one to say that Superman is perfect, I know that I have the habit of using Bruce and Clark as goofus and gallant, playing one off the other. This is the nature of a foil. Professor Eric Luttrell. Sir Gowan is sort of the foil. He's the one who is not as good in combat. He's the one that's uh, not as honorable, not as uh, courtly, not as chivalrous. So he's usually represented as very arrogant and self-righteous, and he acts before he thinks. But it's also inherent in their power and their responsibility. The scope of sin's significance is different for the paladin versus the earth knight. When Percy fails, the land withers, the wasteland spreads, and the Grail King continues to suffer. Meanwhile, Gawain's many failures are by comparison mostly harmless, and this parallels Batman v Superman. When Superman stumbles, it has world-shaking international consequences spanning the globe, threatening governments, and capable of bringing about the end of the world, as we see in the nightmare. But meanwhile, Batman has been on a 20-year decline, and his issues don't even go beyond Gotham to reach Metropolis. Why are Gawain and Batman more flawed? because they can afford to be. <laughs> so let's look at and compare some of those flaws. I'm talking about Gawain in English here, and in English his name is Gawain, but in the French that Chrétien uses, Gawain's name is somewhat different. It's Gauvin. The second syllable, vin, is a word that becomes in English vain, and it reveals Gawain's deepest characteristic, vanity. Gawain, in short, may look the part of the perfect knight, but this is merely a false appearance. He comes to understand that that glittering knightly exterior can conceal vices, even pride. This is the message of the very long Gawain episodes in Chrétien's romance. Gawain is the beloved favorite nephew of King Arthur. He's the most glittering member of the Arthurian court. He's known for his personal beauty, and he's praised everywhere for his pleasing courtesy, his exquisite manners. But as we find over and over again in his many and varied adventures, the splendid exterior is merely a facade that conceals something underneath that's not so pretty. Professor Luttrell concurs with Professor Pot. Okay. A pun on his name in French. In French, it's Gauvin, and the last four letters being V-A-I-N, meaning the same thing in French as they do in English, a vein. So someone who looks the part but doesn't have the interior substance. So there's a consistent theme of exterior appearance, which one might liken to the Bruce Wayne persona. As Gawain is a star of Camelot, Bruce is a star of the American dream. Old money, big industry, wealth, power, celebrity, and good looks, a socialite and a billionaire, but it all conceals an inner ugly anger. Now note that this is not inherent criticism of dual identities, but an emphasis on intention. For Gawain and Bruce, they intentionally project a secondary inauthentic identity of their own creation. That last martini was uh, too, too many, I think. I like those shoes. Oh, I thought I'd come drink and dry. By contrast, Percival and Clark are always their authentic selves, and the unintended secondary identity is what society projects onto them. Superman? The alien, sir. That, that's what they're calling them. We have always created icons in our own image. What we've done is we project ourselves onto him. This means something. It is society that calls them Superman or the Red Knight, who deem them naive or a fool. 
Professor Potke notes this inversion. In a long series of Gawain's adventures, he's constantly challenged by charges that he's a traitor, a seducer of woman, a coward, and most importantly, a fool. This is an important charge because this is what Percival looked like at the beginning of the romance. What we find out is that Percival may look like a fool, but underneath he's not. In contrast, Gawain doesn't look like a fool, but he is one. Gawain is repeatedly accused of various moral failings, covetousness, avarice, and especially pride. Superman is called a threat to humanity, but he's not. It's actually the humans, Lex and Bruce, who put us all in jeopardy. Both try to disguise their plots, justify and explain some benevolent plan to save humanity, when in actuality, it's a highly personal issue. Yet the one who's suffering from all these personal attacks is actually the one who selflessly saves humanity by his spontaneous, authentic, and genuine nature. No calculations, plans, strategies, or rationalizations. Now, outside these two stories, Gawain and Batman also share a similar trajectory in their mythos. When we go back to earlier renditions of the Batman, it may be painful to see how far he's fallen in this film. Looking back at the Silver Age or Batman 66, he seems hardly recognizable. And indeed, this was also the case for Sir Gawain. In his earliest renditions, he was essentially Arthur's champion. If you know his name at all, apart from the Grail legend, you probably know him best for the story of the Green Knight. Now, if you read Gallon of the Green Knight, you see a very different characterization of the, the same knight. He's very virtuous, very chivalrous, very much the best knight in battle, but also the best knight for his virtue. And this goes all the way back to Geoffrey of Monmouth. Geoffrey of Monmouth was basically the first to compile and canonize Arthurian lore. So Gawain's good reputation goes back to even before the beginnings of the written tradition. And this tracks with Batman and Superman. For all the talk of them as night and day, if you actually go back and read some of the issues of World's Finest, you'd be hard-pressed to find an occasion where you couldn't swap their dialogue bubbles. They were both just as noble, just as just, just as sunny in disposition, not to mention Batman's colorful teenage sidekick, Robin. Metatextually, Batman is Superman's brother. They're two sides of the same coin, an expression too often construed as opposite when it actually means two perspectives on the same thing. No matter which side I see, the coin still amounts to as much, which is all to say that Gawain was just as honorable once and shares something in common with Superman. If Batman is the Dark Knight, then Gawain was the Sun Knight. Also, side note, this is the first time, ladies and gentlemen, that we hear Sir Gawain being described as the Knight of the Sun. Sometimes because he's been given the gift of the Sun's strength, which means while the Sun is out or while the Sun is risen, he has this almost like super strength, enhanced strength, and therefore when the Sun is set, his strength is weakened a little bit as well. Sometimes it's because of that, sometimes it's simply because he has this radiant Sun-like personality, and he's just very warm and welcoming. So this is the first time that Kletchen gives us this Night of the Sun description. Super strength from the sun and a positive personality? <laughs> well, as we said, Adam West's Light Knight might be said to bear more in common with some conceptions of the Superman than even later iterations of Batman himself. Ironically, the womanizing, philandering, billionaire playboy should also face accusations of being a confirmed bachelor, with his young ward Dick as Exhibit A of his inclination. 
Similarly, Gawain had his own young protege sidekick, Yvain, leading to similar suggestions. Months pass. Gawain doesn't let Yvain leave his side. I personally think Gawain has a fondness for this guy that's a little bit more than platonic, if I do say so myself. Gawain has always had this sort of a fondness for other men. Just throwing it out there. So as an established quantity and an established name, creators would use him as a foil for their own creations and even against Gawain's earlier reputation. This is how Kratian uses Gawain to prop up the introduction of his French champion, Lancelot. But he even shows up in most of the Lancelot narratives as the foil, as the one who's one of the best knights, but he's not quite as good as Lancelot. This is just sort of used to show how good Lancelot really is. But by the time we get to Thomas Mallory, he's become almost the worst knight, the, the most arrogant, the most unchivalrous. But this whole tradition of uh, Gowan is this sort of vengeful or vain or arrogant or brash or unchivalrous knight. All of this comes from the French tradition, the Vulgate cycle, and that comes from Chrétien's youth of Gowan as the not-quite-as-good-as-Lancelot character. This is the tradition that Mallory picks up in Le Morte d'Artur, and because Mallory's Le Morte d'Artur is the most comprehensive accumulation of Arthurian narratives, that's the representation of Gowan that makes it back into English. He does have his own tradition. He does remain the hero in a lot of iterations of Arthurian narrative. And in certain accounts, he's even the one who achieves the grail. Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns was a deconstruction of the superhero, and in that sense, of Superman. So accordingly, his Batman was fashioned to act as that Superman's foil. But that also meant that he acted as a deconstruction of those earlier iterations of Batman. That depiction has resonated across the mythos, creating other cynical, paranoid, darker, and more violent versions along the way. And so that parallels the literary history of Gawain's descent, once chivalrous, but increasingly cast as the fallen, broken, dark shadow of a knight. Here, in BVS, Snyder somewhat plays the role of Mallory, compiling all of Batman's worst moments and projecting them out as you'd expect for a figure who's fallen too far. However, neither knight has been stuck there. Across the ages, both have been rehabilitated and redeemed. As we've mentioned in earlier episodes, Tolkien is partly responsible for making The Green Knight Gawain's best-known story today. And here, Campbell gives a glowing description of Gawain. Now we have two heroes. Uh, this is a charming character. He's a delightful character. He's a delightful character wherever he appears, actually. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example. The forthright, lovely person, graceful and sensitive, and with a wonderful, let me say, responsiveness to feminine beauty. <laughs> it seems incredible that he should be describing the same character that we've been discussing above, but he has a reason. Gawain is a ladies' knight. He is the counterpart of Parsifal. Parsifal's young. This is an older, sophisticated man, a very gracious man who is man of the world. And Gawain's adventure is in balance and counterplay to Parsifal's. Parsifal's is that of the ideal of life, the youth who, for heaven's sake, meets just the right girl at just the right moment that way. So Gawain is the rest of us, you might say. And how this mirrors the stereotypical argument that Superman's life was charmed and that Batman's life is cursed, leading to a more sympathetic view of Batman's relatability. 
An older man with a winding path might see more of himself in Gwen's failures than in Percival's purity. Nonetheless, like the eternal Batman and Superman debate, you can always make your arguments, and of course, a multitude of more mentally healthy Batman renderings abound, so one need not be incensed at any particular portrayal or interpretation, as reasonable minds may differ. This one, in BVS, was for a specific purpose and specific story, with a journey we never saw completed. And unfortunately, that too has been a legacy of Gawain. Although Percival vows to find out about the Lance, this is a quest that is passed off to Gawain, the other main character in the romance. Gawain vows that he will find the Lance and find out why it bleeds. He never does this, though, because he's distracted. As I've mentioned, Gawain's name in French is Gauvin, and that syllable vain tells us that he's useless. He's a useless knight who cannot fulfill a quest. He doesn't serve. Gawain goes off on one adventure after another, never completing any of them. So let's talk about service and then the unfulfilled quests. In terms of service, you have Gawain, who is like Arthur's son, but barely serves Camelot. And then you have Percival, an orphan unattached to anyone, but who dutifully sends knights into King Arthur's service. This is similar to how Bruce Wayne is the apple of America's eye, but Batman can barely be said to be serving America. While Superman is not officially affiliated with any nation, but who dutifully serves American interests most times. Gawain benefits from his lineage, but then doesn't serve the societal source of his blessings, while Percival inherits nothing but his blood and still does his utmost to spread Camelot wherever he goes. Bruce inherits billions from the stability of American society, but becomes a criminal vigilante lawbreaker, while Clark would have his powers no matter where he was raised, but still upholds American institutions and values wherever he flies. Of course, I constructed this way for the sake of contrast. It's easy to argue otherwise or find exceptions, nuance, or differences. After all, was Gawain's accusation against Guinevere in Excalibur upholding the ideals of chivalry and society or tearing it apart? How do you balance truth, corruption, hierarchy, propriety, and decorum? Reasonable minds will differ. Now, in terms of failed quests, I've long listed Batman's many failures and frustrations in BVS, but lest you think I'm too harsh on him, remember that being useless is his own assessment of himself. Bruce deems his own career as pointlessly pulling up weeds, that his entire career will be a waste, and that the only thing that matters now is Superman's death. He's failed as a crime fighter, a promise keeper, a mentor a father and a friend. He's let his family die, his parents, his Robin, his homestead, and all those lost in the fall of Wayne Financial. He dies in his nightmares, he can't sleep, can't love, and he lies to Alfred, his last and only remaining confidant. And then he fails to convince that confidant that his convictions are correct. His first attempt to hijack kryptonite is a failure and ends with a busted Batmobile. From a certain perspective, you can see Batman feeling as useless as Gawain is. And as we've said earlier, that powerlessness and impotence is a mark of the wasteland, which ironically makes them the perfect candidates to go fetch the bleeding lance. So as if we couldn't pack in any more parallels, both are associated with the spear in their stories. While the artifact attended to by Percival and Superman is a vessel or container, the Grail and the Codex, the relic concerning Gawain and Batman is a weapon, a special spear, the spear of destiny or of kryptonite. To return to reproductive metaphors, obviously a receiving vessel differs from a thrusting spear. <laughs> 
it's Wagner who begins to gender the grail. He starts calling the grail feminine. He genders the spear masculine. And in doing so, Wagner would open the door to the chief interpretations of the grail and lance in the modern realm. On one hand, compelling. On the other, the ability to find everything as pertaining to fertility is a well-known complex, leading to that quip, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. (laughs) So we're going to leave that aside for now. I'm sure a lot of the wasteland impotence analysis overlaps, but let's look at that spear from two perspectives. First, as a religious artifact, and second, as symbol and commentary. We do this because these are resonances explicitly intended not just within BVS generally, but with the kryptonite spear specifically. On at least two occasions, Zach has addressed the meaning and the purpose behind the spear, and they relate to these two prongs. Let's start with the religious imagery. To be clear, this is something intentional and meant to expose our tendency to do this, as Zach recently said. And this sort of superimposing of this godlike morality over him, this was absolutely reference to like Jesus with the cross, trying to find a way to use religious imagery that we're all familiar with in all of our collective psyches, things we've seen throughout our like lives, kind of imagery, these images of Christ-like images. And then also the spear, of course, is like the spear that pierced the side of Christ. This shot of lowering Superman. This is the sending the cross shot where he's lowering him down with the cape. And this is like a... And then the Pieta, of course, you know, Michelangelo. Right there, you can see the crosses and the... It's pretty straightforward as far as, like, reference goes. I mean, it's not really that cryptic. It's pretty on the nose. The fact that this movie came out around Easter is pretty uh, obvious. And by the way, not to say that it's not exclusively Christian. Christian uses Christian metaphor because I think it's universal in its sort of Joseph Campbellian iconographic imagery that, that we are programmed with in pop culture even, beyond religion. We all have it in our collective memory banks. In April of 2018, Zach posted the painting Christ on the Cross Between Two Thieves by Sir Peter Paul Rubin, featuring the moment the spear goes into Christ's side. And so he's citing the same spear used in the Grail legend. When Amphortus talks about his spear wound, he makes it clear that his wound is the same wound that Jesus suffered. Amphortus says, A wound like his, inflicted by the same spear that wounded him, the spear that inflicted the sacred wound, through which with bleeding tears the Holy One wept for the sins of man in pity's holiest yearning. And so the point and value of this is twofold. First, is the meaning inherent in the imagery itself, and second, to show our tendency towards these projections. Too many critics are focused entirely on that first part, believing that the message is heavy-handed, obvious, or an imposition upon the mythos, while entirely missing the second aspect of its inclusion. You can, of course, contest whether it's always been there or an imposition, but that's irrelevant given this second motive, and particularly how this parallels with the Grail mythos. As we've already established, Kratian is the first Grail writer. But note that in his romance, the Grail and the Lance are enigmatic, unexplained, and unattached to any explicit lore in the text. The question we're asking here is, why is the Grail holy? This question may seem a little unusual to an early 21st century audience because we almost always accompany the word Grail with the word holy. We regularly talk about the Holy Grail. I want to remind you, though, that when Chrétien introduced the Grail in his Story of the Grail, there was nothing especially holy about it. The only hint there's anything holy about the Grail, what it's used for, It's the use 
of the grail that's holy. The conflation of the bleeding lance with the spear of destiny takes advantage of lexical ambiguity, referring to the Gospel of John. One thing I need to point out here, that John doesn't give us a lance. He gives us a spear, which is quite a different weapon. However, in the Latin Bible used in the Middle Ages, the word used to refer to the spear is lancia, which can mean either lance or spear. Many believe that the grail was inspired by Celtic tales of magic cauldrons, while the bleeding lance was pointed commentary on the warrior class. Cratian's romances often made social commentary. In one episode, he wrote about an island of women magically cursed to produce silk because... Now, this has been argued to be a comment by Kretchen on France's silk weavers in the 12th century. So, apparently, a lot of women in the weaving industry were paid very, very little and were beaten and were given literally, like, nothing to eat and had very miserable lives. And Kretchen was clearly displeased with this, and so he made a comment on it in this literary piece that he wrote, and this is that. So, good for Kretchen for calling out societal issues. It was the first Vulgate cycle writer, Robert Boron, who affiliated the Grail and the Spear with Christian mythology, turning the relics holy and a part of Christ's crucifixion. But at any stage, whether it was already there or added, is something of an irrelevant critique. Authorian legend already existed. Celtic oral tradition already existed. But Cratian combined them to say something to his audience. Cratian's grail story already existed. Christian myth already existed. But Boron combined them to say something to his audience. Cratian, of course, had a religious teaching attached to the grail, but Robert will go all out to link religious messages to every symbol, every character, everything that happens in the trilogy. Whether the religious imagery was already in the Superman mythos or not, creators are free to combine them to say something to their audience. We'll talk about that in a bit, but to come at Snyder for doing something that we've been doing since the beginning of storytelling and which his film explicitly calls out is kind of ridiculous. One of the more interesting episodes of this kind of cross-pollination was in a 1970s retcon to explain why Superman and company didn't use their powers to put a stop to World War II. In short, the Spear of Destiny prevented them from entering Europe, while the Grail kept them out of the Pacific Theater. In Superman Volume 2, Issue 266 from 2006, Joe Kelly writes a retrospective of this moment. Superman says, I can end this war. Now. Yet he collides with an impenetrable field, and on the ground, wiping the blood from his face, Wonder Woman helps him up and says, Superman, slow down, fella. The Spear of Destiny, remember? Again, this shows that creators mix mythologies all the time. In this case, I'm not going to go into the Spear of Destiny or the Lance of Longinus much. While it has its own rich mythology for you to research, I don't think it's too relevant here. Well, there's this. Scripture describes Christ's body as being pierced by the spear of a centurion to verify his death at crucifixion. In the traditional myth, the centurion's name was Longinus, and he was afflicted in some way about the eyes. Sometimes it's infection, other times it's blindness, etc. In most versions, the blood that comes out miraculously cures his vision, and he gives his life to Christ. So like Longinus, Batman is the armored warrior who uses the spear against a god incarnate while blinded, metaphorically, and Superman's death restores Batman's vision and commits him to the cause of superheroics. But mostly, I think the spear's religious connotations are meant to reinforce Superman's parallels to divinity, not a part of Batman's characterization. For that, we must turn to the second purpose behind the spear, commentary. And where better to get that than from Zack's own commentary of the spear, he says, 
It's very much a very primitive weapon. This notion that uh, you would have to make a weapon that you thrust physically into your enemy is kind of crazy. He could have made a bullet or some kind of projectile out of it, but the spear, I felt, was a much more physical manifestation of him actually physically having to kill, to kill Superman. Now quickly, I have to address this. After spending hours on how the spear was the most logical implement, am I chastened by Zack saying that Batman could have used bullets? No, we're discussing two different things. My kryptonite spear analysis was taking the movie as is and as canon. Within the internal logic of the film, the spear is the correct and logical solution to what Batman wants to accomplish and what bullets wouldn't do. I've already explained that exhaustively, but the gas grenade launcher is a quick litmus test. It shows that Batman is already keen to use firearms and would have used bullets if they would work. He doesn't, so they don't. By contrast, when you listen to Snyder's explanation regarding the personal violence, that is a creative decision external to the story and its logic. Meaning, of course, from a writer's perspective, they could give Kryptonite any properties they wished by fiat. If they wanted bullets, they'd write a version of Kryptonite consistent with that. Instead, they wanted a spear for its religious imagery, and for its tangible violence. And accordingly, the writing and the production retroactively populate the world with details and reality to make that the rational choice for Batman's story. My commentary was simply excavating, expounding, and reinforcing that. Snyder's comments, again, are about the creative freedom to dictate those properties, not an explanation of what those properties were after the fact. Okay, that out of the way. So why does he want a weapon that's primitive and visceral, that's so tangible that you feel your victim's life ebb from your hands? Why something that forces you to reckon with what it means to take a life? Well, it's exactly for the same reason that Kratian makes the lance bleed in the mysterious Grail procession. Again, Professor Pake illuminates this for us. The lance, therefore, is a symbol, and it's a symbol of the destruction that knights can cause. The lance is the most commonly named weapon in the text. You recall that when Percival first met knights, the first object he asked about was the lance that the knight held, and it's the usual weapon used by knights on horseback. This lance bleeds, and it bleeds because lances are offensive weapons. They have no use except to injure and kill people. The bleeding lance is a reminder that knights are warriors, and throughout the romance we meet wounded or dead knights, including Percival's father and his brothers. We learn that the reason Percival's mother has raised him alone in the forest is that she's afraid he'll be killed, just like the rest of his family, if he becomes a knight. Therefore, the Bleeding Lance is a critique of the violent culture of knights. That's the purpose this romance was written, after all, to remind knights that they need to serve. They shouldn't simply kill. As the Bleeding Lance is a critique of the violence of knights, the Kryptonite Spear is a critique of the violence of vigilantes and less thoughtful superhero fare. Remember that knights are a warrior class capable of murder and mayhem if not reined in by a culture of Christian chivalry. Similarly, superheroes are equally prone to unrestrained violence if not tempered by virtues and values. If you sanitize the violence or write it out of the story, the need for these voluntary restraints diminishes. And to the contrary, Zack has always wanted to hone in on what that violence means. In a DGA quarterly interview, Zack said, I always felt that the truth of being a superhero is that people get freaking killed. And that's what Excalibur is. It's violent because that's what it was like. 
In his interview with Forbes, Zach said, quote, We really wanted to show it wasn't just like the PG-13 version where everybody just gets up and they're fine. I really wanted to show that violence is real. People get killed or hurt, and it's not fun or funny. And I guess for me, it was like I really wanted a hero in Superman that was a real hero and sort of reflected the world we live in now. End quote. We hear the echo of these consequences in his commentary. Zod is a powerful dude. To suggest that you could defeat him without him nearly winning is not really realistic or at all the kind of consequence I wanted from my superhero movies. I don't like this idea that there's no consequence, you know, that these characters get to knock around in our world and they don't create and solve giant problems, you know, because that's the mythology. But how do we know that this is a critique of violence? It's apparent from the film, but in his own words, Zack explains in a Forbes interview what was to Batman the beautiful lie, quote, this road of being a crime fighter that's a path towards enlightenment or what is best in men, end quote. And footnote, whenever Zack says best in men, he's quoting Excalibur, another indication of how much influence that film has had on him. <laughs> but back to Batman. The spear in BVS is a manifestation of the use of violence and power as superheroes and vigilantes. That inherent in the power fantasy is an abuse of violence that is unilateral and goes too far, which must be cast aside lest it be used wrongfully, or else its use must come at the sacrifice of oneself, whether of Batman's soul or of Superman's life. And while we take it for granted that it will be used for good, BVS keeps confronting us with less-than-ideal depictions of the power of violence. Collateral damage, brandings, torture, cover-ups, assassination, conquest, murder, and so on. Cretean too wanted to shake his audience from passively assuming the nobility of the knight's primary weapon. In the middle of the romance, we're told almost quite casually that it is written that in time to pass, the entire kingdom of Logres will be destroyed by the bleeding lance. Logres is a term often used in romances for Arthur's kingdom or for England itself. I think I've talked enough about Batman's excessive violence in the past. You can listen to earlier episodes on that. But I think it's obvious that Batman's use of it in BVS is a cautionary tale, not an endorsement. Too many critics presume that this is what Snyder believes is best in men. Hardly. It's an example of what happens when you lose sight of the grail and embrace the lance. All that said, to bring back and integrate our religious themes, there's a reason that the spear still takes center stage and why we don't just espouse total pacifism devoid of conflict. It's similar to the reason that Christians are fixated on the cross, which would otherwise be a rather morbid symbol of devotion. To pick the means of your God's execution to exalt, it's because resurrection follows crucifixion. Again, this is the Felix Culpa, the theme of redemption that's embedded deeply in our collective consciousness, and expressly called out by Batman's closing monologue in BVS. This is the lance with which Longinus struck Christ on the cross. Here we have a large departure from Kratien. In Kratien, the lance was an evil thing. We find out that the reason that the lance bleeds is because it's a destructive weapon. The blood that proceeds out of the tip of the lance in Kratien simply emphasizes the fact that knights kill for a living. It's a critique of the culture of knights. The lance, however, in Robert is very different. As usual, Robert Christianizes most of the elements in Chrétien that had no explicit religious significance. And he associates the bleeding lance with a story told in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. At verse 34, we get the detail that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The spear is a part of the grail procession and the death that lets loose life. If the grail is the cup that captures and contains life, 
Christ's blood, it was the spear that let it loose, just like the cross and the nails. Not that these implements are good in themselves, but a reminder of what they let loose. Similarly, Superman can't reach his true potential or superhero self without death and sacrifice, which is let loose by the kryptonite spear. Consider for all the harm and offense caused by the spear, it is also the means by which Batman can prove that he's changed, the means by which Doomsday is defeated, and the means by which Superman proves his commitment to the world so that the superhero ideal can be born. Now again, this is a redemption of these things, which means that the stories show other ways to work it out. In most cases, there is an alternative means by which the truth can be revealed and transcended. Talking, honesty, transparency, justice, journalism, etc. You have more tools in the toolbox. Knights often get defined by their equipment, accoutrement, gear, and weapons. And that's what we tend to fetish across the ages. Author's sword, Lancelot's lance, Gawain's axe, etc. But for Percival, his primary weapons are internal, spiritual, and personal. You have all the weapons you need. Now fight. His greatest feats and victories won't come by force. Rather, when he uses force, it tends to be a shame, like the scandal of killing the Red Knight. It says very clearly in Parzival, you cannot win the Grail by force. You can only win the Grail by other means. But to wrap this episode, let's wrap with Gawain. He has many misadventures, but we're just going to briefly mention one. While Percy has the Siege Perilous, the Seat of Danger, Gawain has the Trial of the Perilous Bed. <laughs> the story is somewhat nonsense, but the analysis is amusing. Zimmer, Heinrich Zimmer, talking about this adventure, says the sense of this adventure is the masculine experience of the female temperament, uh, which is absolutely irrational from the masculine point of view, and asks primarily, without you knowing it, you simply acquiesce in all of this, and uh, when you have really shown your ability to take it all and acquiesce and remain in decent relationship, then the boom. Appear. Elsewhere, in Transformations of Myth Through Time, Campbell writes, quote, This is the masculine experience of the feminine temperament, that it doesn't quite make sense, but there it is. That's the way it's shifting this time, and that's the way it's going that time. The trial is to hold on, be patient, and don't try to solve it. Just endure it, and then all the boons of beautiful womanhood will be yours. End quote. <laughs> This pairs with our earlier assessment of Gawain as a little useless and impotent, and it lines up with Bruce's encounters with Diana. To him, her injection into the story really has no rhyme or reason. It's up to him to simply grit and bear it. It's not as if he can beat Diana, figuratively or literally. He's actually impotent to fight or stop or prevent her from stealing, uh, I mean, borrowing his drive, and he just has to wait it out. And accordingly, she saves his life at the critical moment. Okay, so while we leave Gawain's story for now, he will return next episode as we pick back up and conclude the story of Percival. Well, I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son.
So a couple of footnotes. This episode had a heavier emphasis on the quarter and midlife crisis questions, which spring from the Grail procession, but I truncated it because we were following Percival's story at that point, and I didn't want to go back into the Fisher King's issues. However, if I play the following clip, I think you can unpack Johnson's insights yourself. A great banquet is held, and everyone is given what they wish from the Grail or the pattern, even before they formulate a wish. Everyone, that is, except the Fisher King. Because of his wound, he is unable to drink from the grail, and his suffering is the worst because of this deprivation. Each person is given wine from the grail and realizes their deepest wish even before they voice that wish. Each person, that is, except the wounded Fisher King, who may not drink at all from the grail. This surely is the worst deprivation of all, to be barred from the essence of beauty and holiness when just those qualities are right in front of you is the cruelest of all suffering. All are served except the grail king. All are conscious that their very center is deprived because their king cannot pass take of the grail. How many times have women said to their men, look at all the good things you have. You have the best job you have ever had in your life. Our income is better than ever. We have two cars. We have two and sometimes three day weekends. Why aren't you happy? The grail is at hand. Why aren't you happy? So while we won't discuss it here, for a narrative example, you may consider Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King, a 1991 drama starring Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges. Terry Gilliam was, of course, the freshman director of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> the other deleted discussion is on chivalry, its history, deconstruction, inconsistency, and nuance. The nature of those ideas, their sources, and contradictions. If you're interested, there'll be links in the show notes for more. Maybe someday we'll come back to talking about codes of conduct. The final deleted digression was a much longer rant about the alleged darkness of these stories. So remember, dear listener, that this is the story of the Grail, the symbol of a supreme ideal. That this is the story of Percival, the first Grail Knight, the only one to to attain the grail. And while some critics and commentators will tell you that the ideal, like Superman, should be nothing but sunshine and rainbows, I hope this episode shows you that even 800 years ago, they knew that the road to the grail was hard, dark, and long. I laugh at imagining contemporary superhero critics looking at this groundbreaking story and calling it grimdark. I chuckle at them claiming that these writers who wrote these enduring works didn't understand chivalry, romance, knights, or author. I roll my eyes as they discard the whole of the Arthurian canon based entirely on Camelot shining for a single second, making it the expectations for the whole. Percival's story is ultimately an optimistic one, not because he lives an idyllic life in Camelot at its peak the entire time, rather because the one whose destiny it is to achieve the grail is beset by so many errors and blunders. How many times Parsifal blunders? It is extremely reassuring to see that it is often in his blunders that he finds the next stage of his development. If it were not for this benevolent fact, all the Parsifals of the world would have fallen off the edge of the flat world and vanished into the oblivion they deserve. It's a message shared by Man of Steel and BVS that our mistakes don't disqualify us, often they're what equip us. And we'll see that next episode. Until then, my friends. You're the answer, son. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it 
all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know goes away in the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you hurt Where this crown of thorns Upon one liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear you are someone else I am still right here What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you hurt If I could start again A million miles away Answer, son.